extremely grateful that all of you have chosen to be here for our study this evening, whether you're doing that in person or online. And I apologize in advance for my inability to be there in person, but I'm certainly grateful for this technology that allows me to pre-record this class so that you can view it this evening and we can stay on track with our study. Because right now we're engaged in this study, as you may know, of how to study the Bible. And we've been focused recently, at least the past, the previous two weeks, on things we need to look for when we're reading the text. See, we're in, uh, involved in this uh, examination of, of what we need to do to improve our study habits. In particular, we're looking at how to carefully read the Bible, because that's step one. Before we get into the application, before we uh, get into using other resources and consider the context, before we get into all those other steps and processes, we have to be able to carefully read God's Word. And we're, so we're going to keep looking at that tonight. But before we do, I want to remind you that the majority of the material that we're covering comes from this book entitled Grasping God's Word. In fact, the statements you'll see on the screen and every one of the, the, the specific um, uh, suggested things to look for when you're reading sentences and paragraphs and so on. All of that comes directly from this book, so I want to give credit to these authors, but also make you aware of it because it might be a great additional resource for you. But this will be coming from uh, the book Grasping God's Word. Now, one thing they do in the book is they emphasize this map. They call it the interpretive journey. It's describing the process that we must go through from examining the text of Scripture to applying the text of Scripture. And they have five steps to it. And I want to remind you of those steps because we're still residing in step one. Step one appears there on the left side of the screen, uh, and it's associated with that ancient-looking city. That's because the first step in the interpretive journey is for us to grasp what the text meant to the original audience. We need to understand uh, what they would have understood, because a text cannot mean what it never meant to the original audience. That's a guiding principle of translation. But then you'll notice step two takes us to what's supposed to be this river that's dividing that ancient city from us today in our modern town. And you'll notice the words in that river, culture, language, time, situation. All of these factors are creating a distance, a divide between us and the original audience. We don't live in the same culture. We don't speak the same language. It's not the same time period. Our situations are very unique. And so step two in the process of the interpretive journey is to discover the differences that exist between the original audience and the current audience. What's the difference between what was going on then and there and between, from what's happening now? And we have to then move on to step three, and that is come up with a principle that can bridge the divide of the culture, language, time, situation, and so on. And the authors call it the principalizing bridge. We then develop a, a, or discover the theological, doctrinal, biblical principle that can be applied in both times, to both cultures, to both 
situations regardless of who the audience is. And, and we can cross that river with the overarching principle we discover in the text. Once we've defined that principle, the next step is step four, and you'll see it's a little map there on the screen. That's because uh, the authors say that in step four, you need to consult the biblical map. You need to compare your biblical principle to the rest of Scripture to make sure it holds up, to make sure it's consistent with the message of Scripture, because the Bible does not contradict itself. And so once you, you discover a biblical principle that can apply to both settings, you then consult the entirety of the Bible to make sure it's a consistent message within the text of Scripture. And once you've finished step four, you can move on to step five there on the right side of the screen where you start making applications. Applications can be many. So that's why there's multiple roads on the map. But the applications are based on the principle in consult with the rest of Scripture and then applied to our current day and age. And so that, that map, that interpretive journey is guiding us through this study. And right now we're still in step one where we're looking at the ancient city and we're looking at what the text uh, meant to that original audience and, and how they understood it. The only way to accomplish that is careful reading of the text. Uh, we've mentioned already in this, in this class over the past couple of weeks that, that it, we can't just read the text once. We've got to read it multiple times and be looking for multiple things in it. We spent the first week and a half talking about nine things that we need to observe when we read sentences. And last week we began talking about the things we need to observe when we're reading paragraphs or chapters or larger sections of text. And we're going to finish that conversation or that, that presentation this evening. I want us to notice all the things that we should pay attention to when it comes to reading large sections of Scripture. And so I'll give a little bit of review from last week, and then we'll move on to the other principles that need to be added to that this evening. So let's begin with the, 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 the first thing we talked about last week when it comes to what we should notice in paragraphs. And the first thing we said was that we need to notice when the text has, uh, when the text, uh, has language that goes from general to specific. Or vice versa, from specific to general. See, sometimes an author will introduce an idea with a general statement, an overview or a summary or a thesis, a main idea. The author may then follow the general statement with specifics of that idea. And often the specifics provide the supporting details that make the general idea true or explain it more completely. So there will be times in Scripture that you'll have an overarching principle presented and then explanation of that principle is borne out in the following or subsequent verses. And so a great example of that is Galatians chapter 5, where we have the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit presented. Now if you look at verse 16 of Galatians chapter 5, which I've highlighted in yellow for you, Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's his overarching theme. That's his general message. That's the general statement that he's going to expound upon. And when you drop down to verse 19 and go through verse 23, you're going to see him give the specifics, the details of what he's saying. First he says, walk by the Spirit. But he's not going to expound on what that means until you get to verse 23. And in verse 23, you'll notice 
that he says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Notice the connection between the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. He goes on to list love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It means bearing those fruits. And then in his back, going back to his general statement in verse 16, he not only says walk by the Spirit, but he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, what are the desires of the flesh? He starts explaining that in verse 19 when he mentions the works of the flesh. Of the flesh, used in verse 16 and verse 19, shows us this connection. Don't gratify the desires of the flesh. The works of the flesh are these, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That was his specifics associated with what the works of the flesh are. And so here in Galatians chapter 5, he starts with this overarching theme, this overarching statement, and in the subsequent verses, he expounds on what walking by the Spirit entails and what the desires of the flesh entails. That's what general to specific Involves. And sometimes you'll even find occasions where that general to specific is reversed and you're given the specifics prior to the general. But uh, we'll, we'll work with that in time. The next thing we talked about last week that we should be looking for in paragraphs are questions and answers. Now, this is exactly what you would think it is. The points in the text where a question is raised, typically a rhetorical question, and the answer to that question is provided by the author himself, usually. This is important to note because it helps us understand context. It helps us notice what's happening in the Scripture. It helps us, it helps us pay attention to the fact that what is following the question is ultimately an answer to the question. One of the best passages to notice such questions is Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, because in this text, uh, Paul raises a, a, a whole lot of rhetorical questions. Uh, you can see them highlighted in yellow here. What then shall we say to these things? Question number one. If God is for us, who can be against us? Question number two. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Question number three. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? That's question four. And then verse 34, who is to condemn? Question five. And then verse 35 has question six and seven. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword implied separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks seven rhetorical questions here. And if you pay attention uh, to the, the subsequent verses, you'll see him answering those questions for his audience. He's setting them up with a question that he then answers. This happens in the ministry of Jesus. This happens in various uh, letters throughout the uh, Paul's writings. And so rhetorical questions will play a prominent role. Note those questions and identify their answers when provided. Another thing we want to look for when we're looking at larger sections of Scripture is we want to pay attention to dialogue. Now, that may seem at first glance to be too obvious of a thing to worry about because especially when you get into the narrative text, there's going to be a lot of dialogue. And you could argue that every epistle is ultimately dialogue because it's Paul uh, communicating uh, to his, his uh, audience in some fashion. But we want to pay special attention to dialogue because we can miss nuances if we don't. So... Don't just read through the dialogue without paying attention to it. You need to ask questions of the dialogue when you encounter it. 
You need to ask who are the participants? Who is talking to who? It may even be beneficial for you to highlight the two communicators with different colors. And then also pay attention to the setting of the conversation of the dialogue. Notice where and when and, and what's happening at that moment. Pay attention to whether or not other people are around. We noted last week how when we read the Sermon on the Mount, you have two audiences present. If you look at the start of Matthew chapter 5 and, and the first couple of verses, you have Jesus' disciples who he specifically sits down to teach, but there's recognition that the... the uh, Crowds have flocked around him as well. So you notice the audience. Pay attention to, to who else might be listening in. And, and pay attention to the type of dialogue. Is it an argument? Is it a discussion? Is it a lecture? Is it is it just a friendly, casual chit-chat, as we might say? Or is it an educational opportunity? What's the point of the dialogue? That can help you with a lot of context as well. And a great example comes from John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19. If you read through this passage, you'll see I've got Jesus speaking in yellow and Peter speaking in green. Most of the time, the first thing we observe is that Jesus asks Peter a question about loving him three times, and Peter responds three times. And we correlate that with uh, Peter's denial of Jesus. It's a great correlation, but there's lots of details in this dialogue. Notice in the first time that Jesus asks Peter this question, he says, not just do you love me, but do you love me more than these? What's the more than these a reference to? Why does Jesus, every time he poses the question, refer to Peter as Simon, son of John, and not Peter, the very nickname that Jesus gave to him, or Cephas for that matter? Also notice that every time uh, Peter answered that, you know I love you, Jesus would respond a little bit differently, a little bit of a change on his terminology. It may not be significant, but he'd say, feed my lambs, or he'd say, tend my sheep, and finally, feed my sheep. Is that significant? Is it worth noting? And even at the end of the conversation, we look at the very end of the verse, and after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. What's significant about that? We might note that that connects back to some of the very first words Jesus ever spoke to Peter when he called on him to become an, uh, a disciple. So pay attention to the dialogue. Who's speaking to who? Something else about this particular one that would be worth noting is that in the, the verses that immediately follow this dialogue, you find out that John the Apostle was nearby. And, and he heard this conversation and he kind of got brought into it on the tail end. Things like that are worth noting uh, when it comes to dialogue. So don't just read past dialogue without giving it its due diligence. We also talked last week about purpose and result statements. These are phrases or sentences that describe the reason, the result, or the consequence of some action. They are frequently introduced by result-oriented conjunctions such as that, and order that, or so that, but they can sometimes also be introduced with a simple infinitive. Really what we're talking about with purpose and results questions, uh, statements is uh, when there's a statement in the text that is answering the question why. Why did this happen or that happen? And so I'm going to give two examples of this to help us out. 
just as a quick reminder, we have Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where we are called his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You'll notice I highlighted the phrase that we should walk in them. In this particular passage, that phrase explains why we were created in Christ Jesus for good works, so that we would fulfill those good works. Uh, another great example is Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 3, where the Israelites are commanded to hear and be careful to obey or be careful to do God's word. Uh, them as a preposition is one of those things you need to note and find out what its uh, uh, origin is. And we find out the reason they are to hear and to do, and my highlighting did not work well here for some reason, is so that it may go well with you and that you may multiply greatly. There are two purpose result statements here. And one is that it may go well with you. The other is that you may multiply greatly. I'm sorry that second one did not highlight. Um, but the, the, the reason why they should hear and do God's word is so that it may go well and so that they may multiply greatly. That's purpose and result statements. They are a little different than this next one, means. When we say means, we're talking about the means by which something happens. While purpose results statements are focused on the why of something, means statements are focused on the how. When an action, a result, or a purpose is stated, look for the means that brings about that action, result, or purpose. How is the action or result brought into reality? How is the purpose accomplished? One thing you'll note with these type statements is that they often use the word by or through. Um, those are, 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 are terms that will often precede such a statement to help you identify them. But what you can do is insert into the text the phrase by means of. If the, if, if the text makes sense with that phrase inserted before the, what you're looking at, then you've probably got a mean statement. So Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. How are we saved? By means of grace through faith. Here we have the means phrase kind of split up in the text. Uh, but it encompasses both the words grace and faith. By grace through faith is the means by which we are saved. Another example would be Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. How does faith come? By means of hearing. How does hearing come? By means of the word of Christ. So you have two different mean statements in that verse. Hopefully, uh, the difference between means and uh, purpose result statements won't be too complicated for you. The next one is conditional clauses. We need to be paying attention to conditional clauses. These are the if-then statements that you'll come across. These are clauses that present the conditions whereby some action, consequence, reality, or result will happen. The conditional aspect will usually be introduced by the conditional conjunction if. The resultant action or consequence will occasionally be introduced by then, but often the resultant action or consequence has no specific introductory words. 
Whenever you encounter a conditional clause, always determine exactly what the required conditional action is, that is the if part, and also what the result or consequence is. That's the then part. These can be fairly easy to spot. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The uh, conditional part is if anyone is in Christ. The result or consequence part is the he is a new creation. You'll notice I inserted the word then to help you see the if-then context. The word then does not appear in, in this English translation. Another example would be Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. And this one has the uh, if part after the then part. And you kind of have to do a little searching. I, I give you this example to show you how you might have to dig sometimes to find the, the pairing. But Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. If you continue in the faith, then you are re reconciled. He has already reconciled you, but that reconciled state can be compromised if you don't continue in the faith. That's what the text is saying. And so your if-then is a little out of order in that context. But those are the all of the, the uh, uh, things to look for in paragraphs that we covered last week. So now we're going to transition into some newer things or some additional things we need to be looking for, I should say. And the first of those is called actions or roles. You need to look for the actions and roles of people as well as God. You need to know what the action or role is defined. It is for you and any other human being, in according to that text, but also distinguish it from what the actual role is of God. So biblical passages often refer to actions of people as well as those of God. Identify these and mark them as separate. Ask the question, what does God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit do in this passage? And then ask, what do people do in this passage? Then ask whether there's any kind of connection between what God does and what people do. Is what I do a condition of what God does or vice versa? If I don't do this, will God do that kind of thing? Um, or because God did this, I'm supposed to do this? That's what you're looking for. So, so look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. This instruction is given by Paul. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now I want to ask you, look at this passage for just a moment and consider what is the action or role of us. What's our responsibility according to this text? I'll give you a little hint. There's actually two statements that are applied to us and stated as imperatives. Those two statements are be imitators of God and walk in love. That's the action that is expected or required of us as Christians. Now, see if you can find what is expected of God or, and or Jesus according to this text.
Well, we have both God and Christ mentioned in the text. And what you'll notice is that Christ's action was to give himself up for us. God's action is a little bit uh, more difficult to notice, and that is God's responsibility is to be the one imitated. We're imitating him, so his responsibility is to be the one imitated. Christ's responsibility was to give himself up for us. Our responsibility is to imitate God and to walk in love. So here we have action role statements that apply to mankind and then apply also to, to Christ. But they're, they're different statements. Let me give you another example to try to help with this. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. This is a passage we've looked at several times in this particular uh, discovering what we need to see in the text uh, study. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Okay. What is our role or our responsibility or our action according to this text? We are told to walk in the light. That's what's expected of us. Now, what is Christ's role or God's role in this passage? Or what is Christ's activity and or action in this passage? What is God's activity or action in this passage? Again, that one may be a little bit trickier. Now, it's easy to spot uh, Jesus here because Jesus' role is to cleanse us from all sin by the shedding of his blood. But we also have this statement that he is in the light. God is in the light. In fact, 1 John talks about the fact that God is light. There is no darkness in him. So we also have that responsibility, that action, that role associated with him as being in the light. And we're supposed to walk in the light as he is in the light. So notice those actions and those roles so you can distinguish what's your responsibility from God's responsibility type thing. You may also, we've already seen this slide, but there's a paragraph at the bottom I want you to notice. It says, also be sure to observe when references to God are made in relational terms, whether that be father, husband, king, whatever it may be. Those relational terms associated with God help define roles as well. A great example of this occurs in Matthew chapter 5 and 6, particularly Matthew chapter 5, the last verse, verse 48, through the 34th verse of chapter 6. Now, there's not enough space for me to present all of that text but what I want you to notice in the text is how many times the word Father appears. This is set in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. And over the span of these verses from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 through Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34, there are 13 references to God as Father. By the, the repeated use of Father in this passage, Jesus is clearly trying to convey an idea of relationship to God between us and him as a child and father relationship. And that matters when you really look at, at the context here. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He set an example. You follow it. Uh, your, your father sees in secret. You should pray to your father in secret. You, you uh, get down to verse 15. Uh, 
your father will not forgive your trespass. There is an intimacy in this language, even the even in the model prayer. Pray then like this, verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. There is intimacy and responsibility intimated in this language that distinguishes God with this particular uh, title and role. So, as we we're saying, be sure to observe when references to God are made in relational terms because that helps in the understanding of action role statements. Next, you also want to look for emotional terms. And unfortunately, I think I have misplaced the correct uh, slide there. But when we talk about emotional terms, what we're talking about are um, uh, words that have impact. See, the Bible is not a book of abstract technical information. It's a book about relationships, primarily relationships between God and people. Emotions play a big role in those uh, relationships. Oh, excuse, excuse me. Emotions play a big role in relationships. And this is frequently overlooked in biblical interpretation. So as part of your careful reading, when you observe a text, be sure to underscore words and phrases that have emotional overtones, words that convey feelings and emotions. Now this one is a little more subjective, so it may, may take some getting used to. But let me take you to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, where Paul writes these words. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I want you to look at this verse and see if you can pick up on some emotional terms. One way to do that is to look at words and think to yourself, why did Paul use this word instead of this much simpler term? I'll give you a quick example. Twice he uses the word entreat. He could have said, I ask Euodia and I ask Sentity to agree, but he chose the word entreat. He chose a word that has a little bit more power, a little bit more emotion behind it. Because he's making an emotional plea for these two women to overcome whatever it is that's dividing them. You'll also notice in verse 3, he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Now, in context, you would discover that true companion is a reference to the church in Philippi that he's writing to, and he's asking the church to help these women get along. But he refers to them as true companion. Not, he's not saying, yes, I ask you also, church, help these women. He didn't say it that way. He chose the language of true companion. He wanted there to be some sort of emotional connection. He wanted to make them feel what he's feeling so that they'll be more likely to help. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. He doesn't just say help these women who have worked for the Lord. These are women who have labored with him. This is personal to him. He's using language as conveying how big of an impact this has had on him. You see, when you pick apart the selection of terms, you'll start seeing the emotion come out in the text. Let me uh, show you another example 
of emotion that can be in a text. This is coming from Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. Jesus here via John is speaking to the church in um, Laodicea. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now, the first thing that's going to stand out to all of us is this spitting out of your mouth more than likely. Jesus says that because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. I don't know that there's really anywhere else in Scripture where that kind of language is used. Instead of, of just making a simple statement that because you're not hot or cold, I, want, I, I can't have anything to do with you. No, there's got to be this emotional language, this word picture of vomit. And notice in the first in verse 15, would that you were either cold or hot. The emotion that's involved there, the begging, the pleading for them to not ride the fence. And the translators have taken the option of including an exclamation point to uh, illustrate that emotion. That's not necessarily Greek uh, uh, punctuation. It's there to help convey the emotion of the text. And you'll notice as, as you go through this particular passage, he transitions from a criticism to an instruction. In between verses 17 through 18, there's emotion here. I, you know, you say this, but I encourage you to do this. And then you can tell you can tell he loves them in verse 19 because he makes this statement. He's making this emotional appeal. I, I, I reprove and I discipline because I love. So here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Be zealous and repent. There is emotion bound up in this passage. Another example would be from the end of 2 Timothy. Now you're probably familiar with verse 7 here of 2 Timothy chapter 4. Here's what Paul writes. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, what we have in this text is Paul recognizing that he may not live much longer. There is some uh, defeatism in his language, not in the sense of there's no reward for him, but there, there's this recognition that there's not a getting out of this one. And so in verse uh, 9, look at how the instruction changes. Do your, or the words change. Do your best to come to me soon. He's begging Timothy to come see him before the end arrives. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, 
No one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it, so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. What, the, what you can see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, I believe, is the emotion of someone who is feeling alone. He's not mad at anyone. He explains where everyone is and, and, and where he sent them and why they're not with him. But he's pleading for Timothy to come. He doesn't want to be alone in these last moments of his life. And so there's emotion involved in this text between him, his, his recognition that the end is near, and his desire for someone he cares so deeply about, such as Timothy, to be with him. So there's emotion that we need to try to pick up on in the text. And that will come with practice. But it's important because it affects this next thing we need to be looking for, and that is tone. We need to be in trying to figure out the tone of the passage. Tone will often closely be related to emotion. Once you have noted any emotional terms, continue on to determine the overall tone of the passage. Is it one of anger? Is, is the tone of the passage scolding? Is it sorrowful? Is it just an unimpassioned explanation? So let me show you some things with tone. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 4, we have Paul writing to the churches in Galatia, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? What we have is, is Paul here chiding or scolding the Galatians. He even sounds as if he may be a little bit angry with them, or at the very least disappointed with them, or maybe a, a little bit of both. His tone is part of the message, though. And you can see it in him, him referring to them as foolish you can see it or, or feel it in the, the chastisement that's part of the passage and these rhetorical harsh questions. That tone is present here in Galatians chapter 3 as he's um, talking to this, uh, the, these Galatian Christians. You can really see it when you get to some of the things Jesus did. Oftentimes Jesus can be portrayed as a, a, a emotionless being, but Jesus very much had emotion. Look at Matthew chapter 23, verses 33 through 35. He's speaking to religious leaders and says, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Let me ask you, What's Jesus' tone here? Is he calm? Is he gentle? Is he loving? No, he's scolding. You serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? He is clearly upset with these religious leaders. Now, transition down to verse 37 through 39 of Matthew 23. His attention turns to speaking 
to or about the city of Jerusalem. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we're just a couple of verses removed from what we just looked at. And you can see that here also a reference to killing the prophets that was part of his message to the religious leaders. So there's still some criticism. There's still some chastisement even here. But in the midst of what he's saying about or to the city of Jerusalem, he draws this comparison to being a mother hen who wants to gather her chicks under her wings. And there's almost a tone here, not just of anger and criticism, but of heartbreak. It seems that Jesus here in talking to Jerusalem is so heartbroken over the decisions they've made and over their treatment of him. And so there is a hurt in the tone as well. So noticing such tone is beneficial. You'll especially notice it in a lot of the uh, prophets and the Psalms in the Old Testament. And you'll, you'll notice it, uh, pay a special um, attention. Uh, you'll notice tone and emotion, since those are the last two things we've talked about, in various books. But, but especially pay attention when you see exclamation marks. Those are indicative of there being some sort of emotion recognized, at least by the translators in the text. So we want to pay attention to emotional terms, and we want to pay attention to tone. We also want to pay attention to connections between paragraphs and episodes. Now, we're talking about larger chunks of material, and what we we're mean by connections here is this par- how does this paragraph or this episode or this section connect with what precedes it and what follows it? That's what we're really concerned about. So far, we've focused on relationships between phrases and clauses and sentences. So we've, we've noticed relationships of cause and effect. We've noticed relationships of general to specific, relationships of condition. We've noticed these things. But now we need to start noticing the connections between larger chunks. And so we need to pay attention to repeated words or repeated themes between this paragraph and the next paragraph. We need to find logical connections of like cause and effect that occur between that section and this section. In narrative episodes, we need to pay attention to the time sequence that happens between them. We need to be sure to note the conjunctions that appear between paragraphs. So let me uh, show you this. Let's go to Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. I I want you to notice this particular paragraph text and then pay attention to how it relates to what happens before and after it. In Mark chapter 22, um, excuse me, Mark chapter 8 between verse 22 and verse 26, we read this story. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not enter the village. Now that's a very, very interesting story. Jesus healed a blind man, but it didn't take effect perfectly the first time. 
And so for the one and only time in Scripture, we have an episode in which Jesus has to heal someone twice. Is that indicative of a problem with Jesus' power? I don't believe so. I believe it has everything to do with context around it. It has everything to do with the connection between this paragraph, this event, and what precedes and succeeds it. So if you actually look in Mark chapter 8 and look at verses 14 through 21, which precede it, you have an incident in which Jesus asked his disciples some questions and realizes that they do not fully understand who he is. They see only partially, much like this um, blind man only saw partially. He saw trees walking when he was initially healed. His disciples have made leaps and bounds from where they were when they started out, but they don't see clearly yet. And then when you get to verse 27 through 30 that follow that story, you find out that they now see clearly. Because it's in verses 27 through 30 where Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Followed up with the question, who do you say that I am? That's when Peter gives the great confession that you are the Christ. So before the story of this blind man that had to be healed twice, Jesus' disciples saw imperfectly. After the story of the healing of this blind man twice, they saw perfectly. So it's not so much a story about Jesus' healing as it is about a man's seeing. So the, the blind man episode is a real-life illustration of what was occurring to the disciples. They were transitioning from poor, poor vision to clear vision, and that story illustrates it. Of course, we can also go into the epistles and see some connections between text. If you go to Colossians chapter 1, you have in verses 3 through 8, praise being given, or I should say thanks being given for um, the Colossians' faith and for what uh, the progress that Timothy and Paul are hearing about regarding their faith and their love. But then you get to verses and then you get to verses 9 through 14, where you start getting instructions, where you start getting um, statements from Paul and Timothy about, um, their need to move on to maturity, about their need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, about doing good works and continuing to grow in the knowledge of God. The connection is that in verses 3 through 8, Paul and Timothy are thanking God for the progress the Colossians have made. In verses 9 through 14, they're transitioning from that thankfulness to, in, to instructions that will encourage them to continue progressing. They don't want them to stay stagnant and just settle for where they're at. They want to encourage them to progress. And so the connection between the paragraphs is one is a paragraph about Thanksgiving. The other is a paragraph about here's what to do next. So we need to notice those kind of connections and understand how the author of each, how, how the author of each book gets from one point to the next. Another thing we need to pay attention to are what's called story shifts. We need to pay attention in larger units of text for critical places where the story seems to take a new turn. In the epistles or the letters, this typically takes the form of a major break in thought. The writers may shift topics. They may change from a doctrinal discussion to a practical discussion. But, and, and that is the case when you get to the book of Ephesians in particular. In Ephesians chapter chapters 1 through 3, we have an emphasis on doctrine. Uh, Paul spends a great deal of time uh, discussing uh, what a new life in Christ is. Uh, is about. 
God's grace and, and and how salvation is achieved and things like that and what the blessings are in regards to a new life in Christ. But in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1, there seems to be a break because from that point forward, Paul is focused on practical exhortations and instructions. He, he's describing in chapters 4 through 6 about how they ought to live, how they must put the the doctrine he talked about in the first three chapters into practice. And the break can be spotted by observing a change in the verbs. In Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul used a large number of explanatory or descriptive verbs. But starting in chapter 4 and verse 1, he starts using imperative verbs, commands, if you will. There's a change in the dynamic of the verbs at chapter 4 and verse 1 that gives us that shift. But we also need to know how to observe shifts in narrative text. They occur usually by there being a major pivot in the episode. Usually a shift in the direction of the story is signaled by an, a significant event. This is evident in the book of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel can be kind of split into two parts, the first half and the second half. In 2 Samuel chapter, chapters 1 through 10, you'll read about all of David's success. Almost all the events in the first 10 chapters for David are positive. He uh, succeeds Saul as king. He conquers Jerusalem, makes it his capital city. He brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He receives a covenant from God. He defeats all of the enemy nations. But then you get to 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 24. It seems different because almost all the events feel negative. His eldest son Amnon rapes, uh, rapes his daughter Tamar. They were half-siblings. But she was a full sibling of Absalom, and in retaliation, David's son Absalom kills his son Amnon. That leads to a, 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 a period of banishment for Absalom, and when he returns to Jerusalem, he conspires against his father, ousting him as king in a coup, and David has to flee Jerusalem. He goes to war with his son Absalom. Absalom is killed. Everything that seems to happen in those last half of 2 Samuel seems to be a negative experience in the life of David. And when you start thinking about the, the positive events in the first 10 chapters and the negative events in the last 10 chapters, you realize there's a pivot that occurs in chapters 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel. And that pivot has to do with David's sin with Bathsheba. It was a significant event. What happened with, with David and Bathsheba signaled a change in the narrative of 2 Samuel. Everything prior to it seems to be positive. Everything after it seems to be negative. N noticing those kind of shifts can help you make observations in the text and understand what's happening all the more. I know we've covered a lot of material tonight and may have been a little bit more complicated uh, with me not being there. But next week we're going to add on a couple of more things to the things we need to be looking for and then do a review of them and try to do a little bit of practice of it as well. So I hope you'll return next week and I intend to have a handout with all of these items on it for you to have to take home. So please be with us next week as we try to wrap up this reading portion of How to Study the Bible. Thank you for being here tonight and may you have a blessed week.